Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I talk to veteran crime reporter Duncan Campbell about the shocking history of crime reporting in Britain in his new book, We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds. Duncan Campbell is a former crime correspondent of The Guardian, former chairman of the Crime Reporters Association, and winner of the Bar Council's Newspaper Journalist of the Year. He has also written for The Observer, New Statesman, London Review of Books, The Old E. Esquire, Los Angeles Weekly, and the British Journalism Review. He was the original presenter of Crime Desk on BBC Radio 5 Live, presented the Radio 4 documentary Bandits of the Blitz, has appeared on the Today programme, LBC Radio, and numerous television documentaries, and he's lectured and spoken widely on crime reporting. He's the author of six books, including the best-selling The Underworld and an acclaimed crime novel, If It Bleeds. And his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds, The Shocking History of Crime Reporting in Britain. Duncan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. Describe briefly for us the idea behind this book. I have always been curious about crime reporters and the kind of people who went into it. And my interest was initially, as a schoolboy, reading True Detective and True Crime, these Mm. dreadful magazines which had lots of graphic photos of torsos found in the boots of cars and men in Homburgs in in America, detectives investigating. So I was curious about the kind of people who wrote about that and, of course, the stories that they were writing about. And I started collecting memoirs of crime reporters and memoirs of detectives. They only go back to really the early part of the last century. And then I got curious about who was writing that kind of stuff before Mm -hmm. and carried on my researches from then and and went back and back. And it was difficult working out where to start. You can say that the uh, Cain killing Abel was the first report of a murder. But I mean, more seriously, you're looking at what were called broadsides, the old form of newspapers in the late Middle Ages. And eventually I decided that to make the first professional crime writer, somebody who was called The Ordinary of Newgate, and, and that was in the going back to the 17th century. And that was, I guess, a sort of official position. Yes. And then there's also the Newgate calendar as well, which yeah, we'll talk about that's at, right. at the same time as these things. But those things are things that, I guess, we would recognise as crime writing as yes. we would understand it now. Right. But obviously they're not crime journalism as no. what you do, for instance, and right. some of the people that we're going to talk about in a little while do. So let's talk about what the format of the, that writing was and what it was like and what they were doing. Well, The Ordinary of Newgate was the chaplain whose job it was to administer to the people sentenced to death in Newgate. And in the 17th and 18th century, people were, were hanged for terribly minor offences, just pickpocketing and things like that. So he was dealing not just with murderers awaiting Mm -hmm. a hanging, but with quite petty offenders and prostitutes and people like that. His job was to interview them, to find out, and because he was a chaplain, where they had gone, where they had strayed Mm -hmm. from the flock, and then to publish an account of their last confession, as it were. And he would, I think, probably make up a lot of the confessions a long tradition in crime mm-hmm. reporting is making things up, I'm afraid. And they would be sold. And 
it then became clear that there was an enormous market. People loved to hear about the lives of highwaymen, how they'd got into it, how they did it, how they escaped when they were caught, and, and so on. And that, that's obviously a salacious yes. thing, but presumably that Chapin's idea of, of selling those reports was to put the people who were watching the execution or whatever on the straight and narrow shot. Well, the, well yes, the there was meant to be a lesson <laughs> yeah. in it, you know, work hard and, and don't get involved with vagabonds and prostitutes and, and things like that. You, you know, like the Hogarth drawings of the idle apprentice and, and the hard-working apprentice. All those lessons, and obviously there was a very, very heavy Christian input into them. But at the same time, I think they obviously quite enjoyed going into the, the details of horrific crimes. And then what happened was that other publishers noticed how much interest there was and they started doing their own pirate versions either they would make them up or as happened in the case of Jack Shepard who was a very famous escaper he did a deal with a publisher that his widow would be looked after if he gave a story mm -hmm. to them and so the, there was a competition between the kind of official version the chaplain who was making a lot of money he was a professional crime writer in many ways mm -hmm. and the pirated versions and you've already mentioned Jack Shepard, but a, mm. a sort of consequence of, of that writing is that you get the beginning of these sort of celebrity criminals. So Jack Shepard, Jonathan Wilde, who corrupts yes. Thief Taker, um, and Dick Turpin, obviously, yes. most famously. So let's talk about... Well, I guess we should talk about who Jack Shepard... And everyone knows who Dick Turpin is. Let's talk about yes. who Jack Shepard is. He, he was most famous as an escaper, mm -hmm. and I think there was... He, he was a thief... But he was celebrated because he kept getting... I mean, he escaped in the most extraordinary way. And I think there is an... We still love mm -hmm. an escaper. He, he was not a particularly violent guy. And so there was enormous admiration that he was able to get out of his chains and out of the prison and away. And enormous sympathy for him when he was finally hanged. Big crowds pelting the, the people who were taking him to the hanging, to, to the scaffold. And um, he was this celebrated... I mean, what a, amazed me reading some of the reports is how young all these people were when mm -hmm. they were hanged. They were all, nobody made it much past 30 in those days. They'd all done all these incredible crimes. So Jack Shepard was, was certainly one of the most loved ones. Dick Turpin, of course, was a pretty unpleasant character. I mean, he would, when he was carrying out his... Robberies, he would take people's trousers down and hold them of their buttocks over a fire in order to find out where they'd hidden their silver and gold and so on. So he didn't have quite the same level of affection that somebody like Jack Shepard did. And, and that sneaking admiration for people who get away with things continues to this day, as we've seen with the Hatton Garden burglary. Also what's going on at this time is, obviously we're talking about crime writing all the way through this interview but what begins now is sort of literary writers I guess start to take an interest yes. in crime so Daniel Defoe who had actually had had experience of being in prison himself Henry Fielding and obviously latterly Charles Dickens being the most explicit one start mm -hmm. writing about crime and criminals as well don't they? Yes I mean Dickens is interesting because he was fascinated by crime and, and as we see with Oliver Twist and, and Bleak House and he went to a number of public executions and wrote about it, wrote about how shocked he was, and he saw executions in this country and, and in Italy, and said that, you know, years hence people would be shocked that mm -hmm. people were gathering to watch it. What was interesting about the public executions was how fantastically popular they were. They were like a cup final, and people would queue for hours beforehand to get a decent view. And they would also pay, you know, three guineas, five guineas to somebody who had a window overlooking where a hanging was going to take place so you could get a decent view of it. And that went on right until the end of public hanging, towards the end of the 19th century. And then after that, they did still allow journalists in to watch executions, but they were no longer carried out for the mob, as it were. But, but they, they still were... become like a, not necessarily a public event, but certainly a news event. Yes, there were big crowds would gather outside prisons right up to, I mean, a mixture of fascination with what was going on. Quite often prisons would, a black flag would go up mm -hmm. when the hanging had taken place. Towards the kind of 50s, 
you were starting to get a big campaign against capital punishment and there would be big demonstrations outside and some of the, the you know, there would often have to be, particularly if it was a controversial one, if it, it was somebody who people felt might be innocent or had not done anything too horrific or had not meant to kill somebody, then there would be these enormous demonstrations outside. And that led, I mean, that was one of the factors in bringing an end to capital punishment in the 1960s. The other factor was the government realised that people were being acquitted sometimes, not because they were innocent, but because the jury didn't want to be responsible for that person's death. And I think the hanging of Ruth Ellis for a crime passionnel, which nowadays she would possibly get a, a manslaughter sentence or a suspended sentence even. I think that was one of the ones that turned it and and the way it was covered in the press. So we've been talking about how crime writing has been taking place up to that point, certainly up to the, the era of Charles Dickens. But let's talk now about one of the genuinely first sort of crusading crime mm-hmm. journalists, which is a guy called William Thomas Stead. So yes. who was he? He was an extraordinary character. He, he Right to the end. Yes, right to the end. He died on, on the Titanic. And apparently, there's various different versions, apparently there's help saving people and everything. He was a very driven character. He believed that he was in partnership with God. God was the sort of senior partner in their operation, and he believed that being a journalist was almost like a religious calling, Mm -hmm. you know. And he was shocked at the time. I mean, it's quite interesting now with the worry about child prostitutes Mm. and... and People trafficking. Yeah, people trafficking. It's very similar to that. There were women being brought in from what was then called the continent um, to work as prostitutes here, and and the, the legal age of consent was only 13. And he found that there was this enormous traffic in girls in London, and he decided to expose it with his paper, the Pall Mall Gazette, and uh, to do that, he arranged, he spent, it's terribly interesting, I mean, he wrote a very long investigative piece, a series of articles called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. Um, I'm not sure if anybody under, quite understood what that meant then, but he investigated by pretending to be looking for girls and, and meeting madames and pimps and procurers and, and the girls themselves. And to show how easy it was to uh, buy a a girl or a virgin, there was more money for a virgin, he bought a 13-year-old girl, not to do anything with her, but just to prove it. And she was moved to France, and he then wrote about it. And it kind of outraged the the kind of aristocracy and the elite at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was seen as this slightly pompous figure, I think. And he was arrested and, and prosecuted for taking this girl without the permission of her, her father, as it were, and, and jailed. And he was very proud of his sentence. And on the anniversary of his jailing every year in his newspaper office, he would come to work wearing his prison uniform. I can't imagine that Andy Coulson is <laughs> going to be doing that. And it led to the age of consent being raised from 13 to 16, which is an extraordinary achievement. Uh, I mean, sadly, it didn't lead to the complete end of child prostitution and trafficking, but I'm sure it had a very big effect. And and he was was a classic crusading journalist, and it was a classic investigative journalist. I mean, one of the interesting things about him, I think, was he was asked to name all the... Um, madames and people who'd given him that information, and he declined. You know, he protected his sources and an, an example to, to people in the future. A case that was sort of contemporary to that is Jack the Ripper, yes. which I mean, there's very little more to be said about Jack the Ripper case. It's been you know covered to death, but it's certainly a key case in the history of crime journalism, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's significant. I mean, it's significant in a number of ways. First of all, for the, reading the reports, then it, they were much more specific and lubricious, if you like, than a similar the way that the Yorkshire Rippers murders were covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went into enormous detail. That was one function of it. They led to enormous sales. Whenever there was a Ripper murder, newspaper sales shot up and Mm -hmm. proprietors realised this and they spun it out as long as they could. It was also significant in that um, one paper hired 
detectives to see if they could find out, you know, in the same way that the News of the World had a detective who carried out the hacking. So that was in advance of things. And it was also significant in that there was a lot of anti-Semitism in London at that time, and there were a lot of suggestions it was a Jewish butcher or something like that. And that, if you look at the reports then, it was pretty unrestrained, the, the levels of, of anti-Semitism at the time. But the publishers realised, boy, people went out and bought, whenever there'd been a murder or the possible arrest or something, sales shot up. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned at the beginning how you got interested in crime writing through the sort of true detective magazines, which is something you talk about later on in the book. But I wanted to, I want us to talk about, because this is a book that's not even specifically about the crime, it's about crime writers. So you spend as much time looking at some of the great 20th century journalists Mm -hmm. as you do the crime so we're going to talk about some of those people in a moment but I want to talk first of all about how you went from being interested in it to being a practitioner how did you how did you get into journalism I I got into I mean I went to a a school which had a um, an idea that we should meet people who were less privileged I think so we went to Perth prison to debate with a bunch of prisoners whether or not it would be a good idea for man to ever go to the moon, which tells you a little bit about how long ago it was. And I met there uh, in prison. I would be 16 or 17 then, somebody, and I said, what are you in for? And he said, uh, oh, I'm in for fraud. I was at Jesus College, Cambridge, and uh, I did economics, and I'm in for fraud. And I was curious about this, how he ended up. He was there with all these heavily scarred Scottish gangsters and so on like that. I was curious as to how he had come to be there. And I I then worked for um, a year at a school in South Africa. And one of the other teachers there was a guy called Jim McClure, who, while I was there, left and became a crime reporter on Peter, on the Natal Mercury, Mm -hmm. on the Natal Witness. And he later became a very esteemed crime writer in, uh, in Britain. He had to leave South Africa and, and he moved to Oxford, and he would tell me about his tales, and I thought, gosh, that's an exciting... I would be 18 at the time, but I did think, God, that's a really exciting job to to have that, that window on, on what's going on. So I think it was then, and I studied law at university and, and edited the student paper, and there was a chance then to look at some... I mean, it, it was interesting, again, it shows you how long ago it was, that we did a big feature on abortion, which was then illegal, on homosexuality, which was then illegal, and on capital punishment, mm-hmm. which was then still legal. And I found all of that fascinating, and, and you know, that, that I felt would be an, an interesting direction in, in which to go. I, 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 after that, I went into a slightly convoluted way of getting there, but I have always found that element of, of crime, I think it's a, it, it's a, a kind of prism through which you can see society in many ways, and, and I still think that. I mean, I still think it is one of the best jobs in, in journalism, it, much more interesting than politics or <laughs> the environment, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of these Great names, then. So I guess we should start off with Edgar Wallace, who's one of the sort of biggest. Yes, names. he's a, a strange character. He was a he did write about crime for the Daily Mail, and he claimed to be the first journalist who could tell from looking at the jury when they came back in whether they were going to acquit or convict. And it does, to a certain extent, hold true to this day. If the jury look at somebody in the dock, the chances are they've acquitted him. If they don't, they've convicted him, because obviously there are many, many exceptions mm-hmm. to the rule. But there is that... And I've been on a jury, and I, and we acquitted somebody, and I, I can remember looking at him to see his reaction, and, and he said... Thank you. To you know, I, I, I'm sure that part of the jury thing is that they were expecting a little acknowledgement that they had seen that he was in it. Mm-hmm. I believe we, we did the right thing, and so that was Edgar claimed that was he was the first person to do that. And I think what he did learn as a crime reporter was how to write fantastically quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one thing you have to be able to do. You know, knock out a piece in an hour and a half, and. So when he became a um, a fiction writer, he was knocking out 
sometimes up to 20 or 30 books a year. Wow. You know, there's a, a famous story of, of a friend phoning up and wanting to talk to Edgar and his secretary saying, I'm afraid he's in the middle of a novel. And, and his friend said, oh, that's OK, I'll wait. And <laughs> he was really knocking them out. And there are crime reporters in some of his novels, mm-hmm. um, although I, they don't stand up too well in the stuff. But he, he was certainly a, a forerunner, and um, certainly he was... He, I think he's the only crime reporter that I know who was able later to employ a butler to lay out his cigarette holders <laughs> for him. Certainly I've never managed that. Another interesting sort of crusading guy, I'm probably going to get his surname wrong, but it's Arthur, is it Tijan? Yes, that, yeah, Tijan, I think. Tijan. Yeah. He was, an, yes, he was, again, like a lot of the reporters, he's a little later than, than Edgar Wallace. Edgar Wallace is sort of kind of made his name in covering the Boer War mm-hmm. and then came back to England and then went off and, and uh, to America. But Tietjens, uh covered Nuremberg trials and he was, like a lot of crime reporters, fascinated by Soho and Vice at that time. And in, in that particular period, just post-war, it was run... There was a family called the Messinas who were Maltese... The, uh, they were known as the Epsom Salts, the Malts. And Tietjens was fascinated. You know, I think there was always an element of sort of dealing with her own fascination with, the, you know, who were these women who were doing it and, and, and so on. So in a slightly more repressed world, there was a great amount of interest in it. And he was one, along with somebody called Duncan Webb, who mm-hmm. was his contemporary who was fascinated by Soho and all these strange West Indian musicians and reefers and things like that. Soho then was was this sort of dangerous nighttime place and and reporters liked to boast how how they had how they were trusted there and so on. And later on again there's a guy a fantastic character Jimmy Nicholson. Yes, Jimmy's still around. Yeah. I mean he's he's not so well at the moment, but yeah, he was an extraordinary guy. He's known as the Prince of Darkness and the there are various versions as of how he got that name, and he tells different, differing <laughs> versions, so I'm never quite sure. But he used to wear a long, dark cape, and um, he has a number of, of catchphrases. He would say, I've, I've been at every siege since Troy, and uh, I've covered every, uh, every execution since the crucifixion, and I'll tell you something, that guy was innocent, and I've been on more doorsteps than a milk bottle. This would come out as a great sort of part of his rap, and he called. He used to call any police officer he was interviewing big noise for some reason, and, and they accepted it. And uh, he didn't really retire until he was in his 80s, and you, he would always be in the the basement of the the press room in the old bailey and he was very he was very open to me as a young reporter and friendly you know in the way that some of the older boys are a bit iffy particularly i was working for time out magazine back mm-hmm. in in the 70s some of them could be a bit snooty but jimmy was always you know happy to to share stories and crack and so on now we talked about three or four different people there right across from you know the beginning of the 20th century right across until the present day. And there's been something all across that time, I think, that's sort of carried on, even though, according to Orwell, certainly mm. in his famous essay, the, the, the sort of tastes were changing as the 20th century. Certainly you, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about the war and the effect mm. of the war on, 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 on sort of crime, and particularly a couple of couple of rather gruesome murders but it is although this book is about crime and lots of different types of crime it is murder that everybody seems to be particularly interested in you do mention another judith flanders book a famous book about the um, the invention of murder Flanders, yes yeah um what is it about murder? Why, why, do, why do we like murders? Well, we're very lucky in this country in that the, there's not many of them around and therefore people find them fascinating. I mean, our murder rate is... I mean, murder rate in most of Western Europe is pretty low. America, it, it's not quite as, as high as people imagine, but it's still about three or four times higher than it is here. And then you go somewhere like Honduras or, or Venezuela and it's 30 or 40 times. It, therefore, nobody... It's not worth a a tale mm-hmm. and I mean uh, even for a city like London of 10 million people there's only about 150 murders a year and most of them are solved and most of them are a kind of not understandable but you can see why they happened and a lot of them are domestic 
if you're going to be murdered, you're most likely to be murdered as a small child by either your mother's boyfriend or a stepfather or a father or something like that. If you get through that, you might be murdered by your partner if you're a woman. And then it tends to be gang, these very sad cases, particularly in London and uh, Manchester, of stabbings of teenagers for respect or territory Mm -hmm. and things like that. And then there are very few that are kind of plotted and planned in the way that George Orwell thought should happen, you know, where somebody has poisoned somebody in order to go off with their lover and, and, and so on. So the ones that have tended to get our attention are either the serial killers, um, the, the Rose and Fred West mm-hmm. or Peter Sutcliffe, Christie at Ten Rillington Place and so on, or ones where there's a very, very specific reason why somebody, or a bizarre reason why somebody carried out a murder. I mean, one case I, I covered was two students from Oxford, not at university, but at, at a crammer there. One of them was a fantasist who told his younger friend... Um, teenagers that he was in the he was undercover SAS and if he wanted to join he had to carry out a, a slotting a killing so they came to London they got into a car and slit the throat of a, um, a completely innocent bloke on his way home from a, a gambling club and then got on the bus and went back to Oxford they would never have been caught but one of the two couldn't live with it and told the tutor who couldn't believe it and they called the police and in London said I've got this student who keeps saying is there an you know is there an unexplained murder and they said yes there is and it was it was very like a murder case compulsion that took Mm. place in in America of Leopold and Loeb and so that was a kind of fascinating odd case it was a very very sad case on everybody's part one of the two was later found to one of the two young men was later to be found suffering from a kind of mental disorder and I think he's still in hospital now. He was acquitted of murder and then because of his state and the other one I think is just out. But cases like those rather than the kind of random stabbing off the Holloway Road mm-hmm. that people are curious about. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Duncan Campbell and we're talking about his book We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds, The Shocking History of Crime Reporting in Britain. And Duncan, on the back of the book, there's a, in one of the blurbs, is from the very sadly recently departed Howard Marks. Duncan Campbell remains one of the very few journalists who has retained the criminal fraternity's trust and respect. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about some various relationships between the pe- the various groupings of people in this trade. First of all, I mean, I guess the ethics of the relationships between journalists and criminals. And you talk about a number of points, actually. There's a particular point in the book where you talk about that specifically. Yes. So let's, let's look at it through those same questions. So is it ethical ever for journalists to pay money to criminals for their story. Yes, I would say it is, if, if that is sometimes the only way to get a, a story. And it happens all the time. However, I mean, it, it is against the law for criminals to profit from their own crimes. Now it is. It, yeah. it is now. In the, the 1950s, for instance, we were talking about Christie, the, mm-hmm. the murder of 10 Rillington Place. There was competition between newspapers as to who could pay for his defence and his trial so that they would get access to him. So it's a long, long tradition. And I think, you know, I mean, we used to get... um, Bruce Reynolds would occasionally write for for The Guardian when I was working there, and and I knew him well and liked him, and, and I thought he was a very good writer. But he would give his fee to Amnesty International because some people complained about a criminal profiting from their crimes. And he wasn't profiting from his crime. He was writing about another robbery. He was kind of doing a peer review Mm -hmm. of a famous Securitas robbery in Tunbridge. And I think, I mean, there's obviously a difference between Dennis Nilsson, who wanted to write his version of how he murdered all these young men that he persuaded to come to his place in Muswell Hill and then killed them and boiled them up and so on. There's a difference to somebody, him being able to make money out of that. Mm-hmm. And somebody who was a professional criminal wanting to write about it. And I'd, I think there was a debate in, in I think, in, in the House of Lords about it. And I th- I probably got the wrong person, but I, it was either P.D. James or Ruth Rendell said that we wouldn't have, if you stopped people who'd been to prison from writing, we wouldn't have Daniel Defoe. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's lots of different things. So I think... It's a rather long way of saying, I think it is okay sometimes to pay people for writing about their experiences if if that is the only way to get it. But the the other issue which comes up in the book as well is there is a great danger in paying people who are witnesses in trials because then you're tainting their evidence. So the other point about the relationship with criminals is, you've already mentioned, obviously, the great, the, the guiding principle of, of journalism, which is always to protect your sources. Yes. But does that hold for people who might well be in the middle of taking part in criminal acts? For instance, there's a couple of stories in this book where, I think on, on occasion yourself as well, where you talk to somebody who's in the middle of an escape, yes. for instance. Yes. Well, I think if if you have given them your word that you're not going to inform on them to the police when they, either by themselves or through a conduit, have got in touch, you have to honour that. And in the 1960s, there was a famous escaper like Jack Shepard. Mm-hmm. He was the modern equivalent of Jack Shepard, called um, Walter Probin, Wally Angel Face Probin was the name he was given because he looked much younger than he was. And when he had escaped, he contacted the Mirror and said, I want to put my side of the story, etc., etc. And they said, yes, yes, that's fine. They then tipped off the police, and they got a front-page picture of uh, Wally Probin with a policeman's arm round his neck, and I can't remember what the headline was, but, you know, captured, we cage violent criminal, Mm -hmm. etc., etc. And um, I knew Probin, you know, quite a while after this, 15 years after he, he was out, and he said that kind of destroyed his faith and trust in journalists and that of a lot of other criminals. And when I was at The Guardian, we had one occasion, a guy called Joe Steele had escaped from Balini prison. He was doing time for what were known as the ice cream murders mm-hmm. in Glasgow, he and a guy called Tommy Campbell. And they'd always claimed they were innocent, and, and I 
think we'd already written about it a bit. He escaped and he came down to London and while he was on the run, I interviewed him and we took a photo and we ran it in The Guardian. And the police then arrived at The Guardian's offices and he had said to me that he was going to give himself up once he had got enough publicity about his case. And I believed him because I thought, why bother risking going to a journalist when you can hop over to the Costell crime or whatever quite easily if, if you're actually mm-hmm. not planning on going back. Why stick yourself up? And um, we made, I think we made a, a statement saying that we understood he was going to give himself up. And anyway, on the lawyer's advice, I said no comment to every question. And they then said, this man is, has killed children. You are harbouring him and obstructing our investigation and a report will be sent to the prosecuting authorities. And shortly after that, he climbed up a, a, a pylon outside Balini Prison and gave himself up. And some years later, he was cleared. He, his case went to the Scottish appeal courts and he and Tommy Campbell were cleared and vindicated, if you like. And we were never, I was never prosecuted. Had he not given himself up, I don't know what might have happened. But I think I think you have a duty if you say to somebody that you are not going to tip off the police, then you have to take the consequences. And, and I mean, Ronnie Biggs famously in Brazil contacted the Daily Express on the understanding they wouldn't go to the police. They mm-hmm. broke their word. They took out Jack Slipper and and tried to to extradite him and bring him back and it blew up in their face but that I think was very very damaging for crime reporters and for journalists in general. Let's look at the other side of that coin then and look at the relationship between journalists and the police now very recently for reasons that will become obvious later on that's changed now and I want to talk about that at the end of the interview Mm -hmm. so let's say okay let's talk about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, say we were, you know, a crime journalist working in, and I say quite pointedly, like Soho in like the 60s mm-hmm. or 70s. Yes. What would the relationship with the police have been like between it, the journalists and the it police? It was very, very close. Very close. They, I mean, they used to drink in the same pub, and if a word came through there'd been a murder or a big robbery or something, and one of the crime reporters would say, oh, it's OK, we can go in my car. And they, they you know, have had a few bites and off they would all go mm. together. And Tom Sandrock, who was the Telegraph's man, would sit there with the flying squad and they would say, this is a good story, Tom, but you can't use it yet, and, and so on. And it was on that basis of kind of mutual, for kind of both sides won out of it, the police gave their trusted reporters a good story or a tip-off or whatever and the police benefited from the way they were portrayed in the press as these people finding the evildoers and 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 so on so it worked very well for both of them and the crime reporters association had a, a, a kind of very close relationship with them the downside of that was that there was enormous amount of police corruption in mm. the 1960s and 70s and uh, when Robert Mark became the commissioner of uh, Metropolitan Police, he said it was his ambition to arrest more criminals than he employed, famously, and, and got rid of a whole lot of people. But that corruption, which some of them must have known about, was exposed by not crime specialists, but other journalists working for the Times, in fact, that, which led to what was called the, the fall of Scotland Yard, as it were. So there was an upside in that mm. they got lots of good stories and there was a downside in that the public didn't know some of the dark things that were going on. But also that means that, I mean, you say as much in the book that some of those great crime reporters, because they needed to get the stories and they needed, you know, they were employed by the papers, were clearly turning a blind eye to what was going on in the police. Yes, yes, I, th- I think that was true. And I think that lasted until, I mean, to a certain extent, till the sort of 80s or 90s, uh, uh, things have, have changed to a great extent. But around that time, I mean, you're talking very much pre-internet, yes. pre-24-hour news and yeah. all of that. People very had a lot more time. Yeah. So on a murder case, people would go off to the scene of the crime. It might be in Worcestershire or, or wherever. And you would people would hang out in the same hotel and, and drink in the same bar and, and get stuff like that. And that was, I mean, I've called it the golden era for, mm-hmm. for crime reporters. It, it was when you still had hangings, <laughs> 
So from their point of view, there was often a good end, a proper end to a story. But there was an enormous appetite for crime and the tabloid, pre- I mean, the, the amount, of, the readership for crime was enormous. Mm-hmm. And it, it, again, before television in a big way, to a certain extent nowadays, television either with crime fiction or crime fact, you know, out with the police on the such and such or whatever. There's a lot of it around. But in those days, people didn't have an entree into police work. So you got it through your newspaper. Now, you were involved in a, a police corruption case yourself, weren't you, the Stoke Newington? I, yes, I wrote about corruption allegations in Stoke Newington in the 1990s. And while I was investigating it, uh, I was contacted by the anti-corruption branch who asked if I could persuade some of the people making the allegations to talk to them. They, at that stage, they didn't trust them very much. And to cut a long story short, when eventually we ran a story about it and The Guardian was sued three years after the story came out, we got a number of writs. And um, at that stage, Alan Rusbridger, who was then the editor of The Guardian, had decided to fight libel actions that he thought should be defended and fought one against Jonathan Aitken famously and Neil Hamilton famously and decided to fight the police federation and the police federation would back officers who brought a libel action we never named the officers Mm -hmm. concerned but they claimed that they could be identified through the story and it ended up we did go to court and we um, won in front of a jury we had a judge mr justice french who is dead now but made it very clear whose side he was on he barely referred to our evidence at all in the, in the summing up he wouldn't allow us to introduce a whole lot of facts but we were very lucky that we had a jury that um, listened to the evidence and i think it it cost the police federation 600,000 pounds uh, we would have gone down for m- more than that. I mean, mm-hmm. The judge was telling the jury that they could award £125,000 per officer and our legal costs would have been enormous. So it's high stakes. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's quite a, a good lesson for a journalist to be... A, I mean, some of the old bank robbers, I don't know what you're worried about. It, you're not paying for it and you're not going to prison. It's You know, it's only a libel case, but... It is a, you know, it's partly to do with one's credibility and stuff like that. And it's, they do drag on and on, Mm -hmm. libel cases, because they then appealed and we went on appeal again. But that was another year later. So you're conscious of that. And I think reporters are conscious. I mean, the libel laws in this country, successive governments promised to do something about them. But they've never really... You're much more protected in the United States than you are here. But, of course, you're also a, you're a crime reporter, so dealing with the police is, is, your, is your bread and butter. And obviously mm-hmm. the Guardian's relationship with the police, as well as your own, must be affected when that sort of thing happens. Well, strangely enough, after we won, I got a lot of phone calls from police officers, some of whom I knew and said, you know, they were glad. Some of whom I didn't, some of whom were in the police federation, and some of whom said they were glad we'd won because they thought that the press was hostile to the federation because they were constantly being involved in in, uh, backing libel actions. They had won 95 actions in a row before we won ours. Almost all of those were settled before they went to court. It was... You know, you would pay £5,000 in damages and it would be called substantial damages. And then your legal costs would be twenty or 30000 And that was because it's high stakes. Mm-hmm. Once you get into court, as you can tell, you're not losing 35000 paying off a, an unfortunate story. You're losing 900000 or a million. And that's why lots of local newspapers particularly shied away from tackling the police because the police, understandably, juries are more sympathetic to people who risk their lives than they are to cheap shot little journalists making stories and and I understand that you know Mm -hmm. I mean in public esteem the police feature much higher than journalists I mean journalists are near the bottom along with I think estate agents and politicians uh, and the police are near the top along with the uh, the ambulance service and, and firemen. I'm Ian Sinclair, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
Well, let's stay with that thought, because I want to talk about what's become a specific genre within the field of crime writing, which is the investigation of miscarriages of justice by journalists. Let's talk about when that, I guess, when that first started. I mean, one I want to particularly talk about is that you've already mentioned Christie a couple of times, Mm. um, what happened there as well. But when the idea of a journalist investigating a criminal who they believe to be innocent... Yes. Anything that goes back away. Yes. Well, Ludovic Kennedy did a lot of work on Timothy Evans, who was wrongly hanged as one of the uh, supposedly guilty people in the Ten Rillington Place case. And I think that kind of set a standard. But it wasn't really until after the Birmingham Six and the mm-hmm. Guildford Four that people realised there were a lot of interesting stories there. And it's quite interesting looking at how, when these cases were first brought up, Chris Mullin, the uh, Labour MP and journalist, got involved in the Birmingham Six case, and there is a headline there from The mm-hmm. Sun saying, Looney, Looney MP backs bomb gang was the headline for his involvement in the, on mm-hmm. behalf of these completely innocent men whose lives were ruined. And then it gradually became clear that there were quite a lot of those cases around. I got involved with one called the Torso Murder Case, which were a couple of guys from very near where we are, Hagar Grove. In fact, one of them just around the corner Mm. from here, Bob Maynard and and Reg Dudley. And um, we did a big story on it in in Time Out, in, in the days when Time Out still did big stories. But it took many years before they were their innocence was finally... Proved. And um, I think a tremendous amount of good work was done by the, the television programmes Rough Justice and mm-hmm. Trial and Error. They're expensive to do these programmes. It's, it's making a film. And sadly, it's cheaper doing a reality show than a complicated investigation like that. They don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the cost restrictions being placed on the BBC, it, it's very difficult for them to justify doing that. So it's... I think there's Bob Woofenden, a journalist, is still doing great work on it. Paul Foote, who's sadly dead now, did great work on it in, in Private Eye and, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. But it does take an enormous amount of time, and there is always the risk that you're backing the wrong horse, you know, and you find that out right towards the end, and you think... I think he possibly did it, you know, because some people... For example, like Hanratty. Well, Hanratty, I mean, Bob uh, will still argue that Hanratty is innocent, you know, and and I know that there are, you know, that there are different views on that. But, yes, that that is the risk that people run. Because sometimes people convince themselves that they haven't done something, and, and it is, you know, it's very difficult to prove it either way. Well, after looking at, you know, the great heroic work that journalists have done fighting the miscarriages of justice. I guess we have to look, as you hinted there, with that headline about Chris Mullins, at ways mm. in which the papers have contributed to them as well. You talk about Colin Stagg in the book, um, Barry George as well, but particularly I wanted to talk about um, Christopher Jeffries, who mm. was the guy that the sort of papers fingered for the Joanna Yates murder. And particularly in light of what you've mentioned a couple of times, the changing atmosphere now of 24-hour news and the internet and there's just constant a voracious need to constantly feed that news cycle, which I think is, you know, is partly responsible for how these things happen. Yes, I, th- I think that's true. I mean, I think the way that he got turned over... I mean, thankfully, he never had to go to prison, mm-hmm. uh, unlike, you know, he, he never got to the stage that... that um, happened to Barry George, Colin Stagg. But it was a kind of example of people desperate to get a story and to get it out quickly, and he seemed like the likely suspect. And I know how easily it can happen. Years ago, there was a... um, When the IRA was still active, there was a bomb on a double-decker bus in in the Old Witch, Mm. and the actual bomber was killed, and... A number of other people were, were badly injured and the police arrived at the scene and, and one of the people at the scene was very badly injured. I think he had a fractured skull and pelvis and so on. And he tried to get away from the scene rather than get into an ambulance. He gave a false name and a false address. And Scotland Yard, there was a briefing the following day, a press conference and so on. This chap was by then under armed guard in hospital and a lot of people assumed that IRAs normally worked in, in a team of mm-hmm. two that it, this he was from Ireland uh, that he must be the second and so I think the Sun headline was one dead one sadly clings to life 
uh, where they removed sadly in the Dublin edition. And a lot of the newspaper coverage was similar to that. And the young man involved was in fact a, a junkie and that, that was the reason he didn't want people going to his house he didn't mm-hmm. want involvement with the police and he then sued a large number of newspapers that had kind of although they didn't name him and he was also suing the guardian although our headline was ira pair i think in inverted commas and we didn't uh, we didn't name him and i think i got his age wrong actually so we were fighting it and he successfully got i think about a couple of hundred thousand pounds in damages quite rightly you know because it looked like he had been accused wrongly of being an ira bomber and he used that money to have a very radical cure for addiction and died in the course of that it was a kind of knockout thing that that uh, you're knocked out for two or three days so you mm-hmm. don't suffer withdrawal but it was a lesson to me not to assume because it, within the police somebody had said to us he's from Ireland, he's a young man he was very badly injured, he tried to escape he gave a false name, he gave a false address, the IRA work in twos, draw your own conclusions mm-hmm. and people did and that was a lesson of never assume I wanted to talk briefly about the effect that the Fred and Rose West case had on crime writing it is one that is just before the you know the internet and the sort of twenty four hour news cycle, but it had a big it, it changed the way that that crime was reported, didn't it? Yes, there, there are a number of factors there. One, an enormous number of witnesses had been approached beforehand and offered large sums of money for their story, and that there was a panic at the time that this would derail the trial. Fred West by now had committed suicide. It was just a trial of Rosemary West. So that was one factor. The second factor was the enormous numbers of journalists there every single day. 150 journalists from all over the world applied for access. And it was covered. If you didn't take up your seat, you lost your seat and somebody else took it. So every newspaper had, the Times had a couple of people Mm -hmm. And it was simpler in those days. I would, you know, you would do your morning and you would file to the news desk. I have to say, a lot of stuff that, that people couldn't read. Almost. I mean, and we cut a whole lot of um, revolting stuff that mm-hmm. never made it into the papers. It was just too horrible what they had been responsible for. But in those days, it came to an end at 7 o'clock. You filed for your newspaper, and there was no... You didn't have to keep tweeting from court. So it was easy. It was simpler in those days. Nowadays, if you're covering a big trial, and they're never covered in that level of detail anymore, newspapers can't afford it, you're kind of required to tweet. And it would... I know I sound like an old buffer, but I've noticed some of the tweets from court, you know... The accused, Mr. Denny, is wearing a, a, a white shirt and a dark tie, and uh, he nodded at a friend in the gallery, and you think, why are you telling me this? But, you know, there's this mm-hmm. compulsion to tweet anything, and, and I think it's, it was much easier when you had a time to filter the information, make it into a story, make sense of it. You break for lunch, you can have a chat with possibly if the witness has finished giving evidence with the lawyer, with a police officer, or with other reporters, and make a little bit of sense of it. And I think it's terribly difficult now. I think it's much harder to be a young crime reporter nowadays, constantly feeding this machine and uh, looking for optimization of hits. You know, you put in the name of somebody in EastEnders, and that means you get X thousand more hits, which I think is very hard. And that's not the only thing that a, a young crime journalist now would have to contend with. So it's, I mean, it's probably a simplification, but all of that, you know, the internet and the 24-hour news cycle led to, you know, that changing reporting leads us to Millie Dowler and phone hacking yes. and Leveson. And yes. so let's finish off talking about what effects that has had on crime reporting now, the relationship with the police, because obviously there was a big fallout of the relationship with the police over Leveson as well. Where are we now? Well, it's changed everything, certainly in terms of relations with the police, and I think probably in terms of relations with sources. I mean, it was a horrible, shocking, shameful thing, and I think accepted, and I interview Mike Sullivan, the crime correspondent of The Sun, And he says how shocked he was to find out that that kind of stuff was going on, that it kind of cast a dark shadow over the whole Sean. And 
So it changed things. It then led to a whole investigation into crime reporting. It changed things because News International, as they then were, the, the Murdoch Empire, having been responsible for the, the hacking thing to kind of make nice with the police, then handed over the contacts of all of their reporters. And this is completely shameful piece of work because it destroyed... So the police were able to see all the contacts that News of the World or some journalists had with police officers. And not that many journalists were convicted, only half a dozen, but 34 sources, including nine police officers, were convicted. And it's immensely damaging, the, the harm that that has done, both in terms of people trusting journalists. If I phone you up as a journalist, is my phone number now going to be accessed by the police? If I email you, will they be able to see the email in which I suggested the story? All of that has changed things in terms of sources. In terms of dealing with the police, the Crime Reporters Association used to have a Christmas party and all the detectives would come along and everyone have a drink and a chat and everything. They don't have it anymore because I think when they gave it last time, two came because they were too nervous to be seen. And... um, Martin Brunt, who's the Sky crime correspondent, was saying, you know, he, he often reports from outside Scotland Yard and he would chat to people as they came out. Now they kind of wave, sorry. And just doing the book, I interviewed a lot of retired officers who I knew and I was hoping to interview one very interesting one and he sent me an apologetic letter saying I could only do it with a press officer present and times have changed, sorry. And it was a kind of... It is, again, for a young reporter now, how you would get your sources when police officers don't even want to have a glass of wine with you. I think it's different outside London, but not entirely. But there's enormous nervousness now about being seen with a reporter or certainly having a drink with a reporter. And I think that's very sad because they were able to explain why somebody had been arrested, why they hadn't been arrested, what was going on. It, it wasn't, you know, just for money or malice or anything like that, That those kind of relationships. It, they were important, and it helped people in the general public, the readership, understand what was going on. And I think that, certainly for the time being, has, has come to an end, on, mainly as a result of this crazed behaviour on, on the part of, of the news of the world. So it's a post-Leveson world and there's the internet, 24-hour news, Twitter, and now if you want to do journalism, you know, you write for the, the papers are all closing, the independence guy, and you write for the Huffington Post and they won't pay you. What's the future like for a budding I don't know. journalist? I, I, I mean, it's, it's very hard to predict. I mean, will they have to have a drone to get to film the crime scene? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there will always be an appetite to know exactly... I mean, it was interesting, Hatton Garden, which mm-hmm. I was covering as well, it, I think was, was covered in such depth because it kind of reminded people of, ah, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's what it used to an analogue like. crime in a digital age, you know, <laughs> and, and it, one could understand it, you know. Obviously, part of the thing was the, the old boys, the, the mm-hmm. diamond wheezers and so on, and... There was a relief about that. So much of crime now, apart from murders, is cybercrime or city crime. And it's not... It's difficult to write about. Mm-hmm. I couldn't write about city... I don't understand how how they do it, you yeah. know, quite apart from the sort of legitimate crime of these ridiculous bonuses people pay each other mm-hmm. and take money in that kind of way. But you have to be a specialist. And, and these fraud trials are very hard to understand and penetrate and so on. So I think from that point of view, the numbers of old-fashioned professional crimes has dropped enormously. It's gone onto the Internet and it's gone into to drugs as well. But um, I think it is hard. But I'm sure, because people always want to know, there will be different ways. It'll be on the internet or people will be podcasting or blogging or, you know, in in magazines and and programmes like yours. It it will find a way and and gradually establish itself. But it will be 
a different world. I don't think there will be that kind of clubbable mm-hmm. world of crime reporting. I think it'll be lone wolves more coming up with stuff. I think that's a good point for us to finish then. Yeah. So I've been talking to Duncan Campbell and we've been looking at his book, We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds, The Shocking History of Crime Reporting in Britain, um, which is out now. Duncan, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Not it's been at wonderful all. to talk to you. Pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.